Hi, and welcome to The Unveiling. I'm Tim, one of the hosts, and along with Ajay and Mark, we are three guys discussing the one true gospel. We hope you're encouraged by this episode. Let's dive right in. Hello, and welcome to The Unveiling. We're here, and we're glad you're here. Well, I say that, Mark. I said we're here, but we're not all here. Well, some of us don't have as much commitment as others, uh, Tim, but we, we, <laughs> we won't name any names. Uh, I had to give you a chance to respond because of what Ajay said in the uh, big 50th anniversary show about his favorite episode. Um, <laughs> this is episode 57, and it's titled The Prodigal Sons. So I'm sure you've all heard it as The Prodigal Son, but Mark has promised a dramatic twist and we're going to move forward with that. So let me set the stage, as I like to do. We are in Luke uh, chapter 15. And I'm not going to read all of these uh, parables and things, but I do want to start with the first two verses, just so you know who Jesus is talking to in this section of the Bible. It says, Luke 15, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, that, uh, that sets the stage. He's, he's eating with people that the law ma- uh, lawmakers don't like and with uh, the people that are rejects from the society, the, the tax collectors. Now, you want to say anything about that crowd before we move on? Well, it's just such a diverse crowd that Jesus is speaking truth to. And I'm sure he's taking both of those polar opposites of the spectrum into consideration as he's sharing the the good news of the kingdom with them and trying to help both sides to understand. People that have grown up their entire life very aware of their own sin because they're living in the Jewish nation that calls them sinners. And so they're very aware of their own sin. Then you've got the other groups that are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes. These are like the top law people doing it by the rules, very haughty, thinking themselves better. And Jesus is trying to, he loves both of these groups. And he's trying to teach them both about the nature of their father and the nature of the Christ and the gospel and, and reach out to both. Because if there's anything chapter 15 is about, it's God, how much God values people of all from both polar opposites and everywhere in between. Yep, everybody, no exclusions. I've looked in my Bible several times at verses like love one another and found no asterisks that says, except for this group or that group. So Jesus loved them all, and his commandment to us is to love them all. So I am uh, going to talk about the, the next couple of verses, uh, verse 3 through 7. So verses 3 through 7 tell the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one gets lost. And he says, you know, which man among you wouldn't go out and find the lost sheep, leaving your the other 99 in the open field? And when he comes back, he's all rejoicing and telling his friends, look, I found the lost sheep. This is a picture of Jesus, you know, the shepherd is Jesus or, or God, uh, one and the same, but um, it's a picture of how he feels about individuals, no matter how big the crowd is. 
be a hundred people. He'll still go looking for that one stray to try and bring them back. And when he does, his joy is overabundant. And he, and he tells everybody, he, you know, it says at the end, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Well, that's, you know, that's picture number one. And I call that the crowd picture. I, he can pick me out of a large crowd. No, I'm missing. Come get me, bring me back and, and rejoice. Then I call, this is the small crowd one, I call this. This is the woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one. And and she has to clean her house and sweep until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and says, hey, I found uh, the, the coin I lost and rejoices with you. And again, he wraps this one up at the end in verse 10 with, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we get to, finally, the story of the prodigal son. And this is the one-on-one God. You know, he's he's not dealing with a crowd. He's not dealing with a few people. He's dealing one-on-one. And in this case, one-on-one with two people, I understand, Mark. Uh, but So let's talk about this particular parable, because I think that's our topic tonight. Yes, it is. And... One of the things I think all three of us on the unveiling can testify to, but is that we read the Bible. We were believers for many years before we were given the revelation of what the true gospel is, the message of God's grace. And once we understood what that was, uh, as Martin Luther said, he's when he understood grace and where our righteousness comes from, which is solely from Christ, he said he felt like he was born again, again, and the gates of paradise swung open before him. And once I started reading scripture after coming to that knowledge of what the true, the one true gospel is, then it opened up understanding into everything, which for years before, decades really, I had been reading scripture through the lens of the law, of religion, of works. And when you read through that, the meaning is lost on so much stuff. In fact, half the time it's 180 degrees opposite because works and grace are 180 degrees opposite. They're like oil and water. They do not mix together. Let me ask you a question, because I know when I first got introduced to grace and the idea of grace, and we'd relook at passages and scriptures that, like you said, were 180 degrees different than what we thought they used to mean, I felt at times like I was almost offended until I really got it and got a grasp on it. And that took a while. And I would argue, sorry, Pastor George, I would argue about a lot of things. Is, did, is that your experience, or were you lucky enough to have that transformation and just get it. I would say mine was very quick because one one of the reasons I think was was the spirit of God working in me and another was because I really knew scripture well and the pastor was preaching very clearly from scripture that was preaching the one true gospel to my ears for the first time and it clicked with me and I immediately said though I'm going to go study scripture and make sure this is right because if it is the ramifications are just mind-blowing and life-changing and transforming. And as I started to go in and do what I called my grace study, bam, 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 everywhere I looked, I saw it. 
And I was like, how could I miss this? How could I have missed it for so long? But an, a, a pastor of mine said, it's because unless you speak the language of the Bible, which is grace, it's going to be over your head. If you're looking through the lens of the law and religions and, and works, you're going to see everything in that light or lack thereof, let's say. Yeah, I was a hardhead and I'm willing to admit it. But, you know, once the lights finally came on, so to speak, praise God. Sorry for that little bunny trail. Let's get back to the prodigals. That's a, that's a great trail. I just want to close up on for many of our listeners out there that may be in the same situation you're in, that when they first hear the gospel of grace, it is offensive to them because their whole life they might have grown up in a family that believed in the Christian religion, I'll call it, which was mixing works and adding all these rules of what you can do and what can't do. And people that have heard this message in church that have thought they were really great, knew the Bible and memorized passage after passage. And now you've got these, uh, I won't say young whippersnappers, because <laughs> we're not so young anymore, but we're whippersnappers. So we've got telling them everything they've known is wrong. And we're trying to do that gently and with respect and always with a preponderance of scripture in hand, that it's not us speaking, but that it's the spirit of God speaking. So, so I just wanted to tell those people out there, it's okay if you're uncomfortable with this, but just do your own homework with the things that on the unveiling here that we present. Go in as I did and as Tim had to do and as Ajay had to do and make sure that this is sound doctrine, that this is what scripture teaches. Amen. Amen. And a good point to everybody. So, okay. So back to the prodigal. This, uh, the prodigal, the story of the prodigal starts in verse 11 and I think pretty much goes through the end of the chapter. Um, so Mark, why don't you take us into that story however you want to and, Sure. And, and as we study this chapter on the parable, just a reminder, we're looking at it through the lens of God's grace, which is the gospel. Christ and him crucified. There's no greater portrayal display of God's grace and love than the cross. And so as we look at it, we're going to look through it as his children, not as his servants or slaves, which is what the law made us. Okay. So I'm going to start reading here at uh, Luke 15:11. And it says, so now, again, Jesus is speaking, tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisee scribes, teachers of the law. And, he, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Okay. And one thing I, I wanted to point out here that I had never heard pointed out before is that both the sons got their inheritance because he says he divided the property between them. So the younger son got his share. And I think you've pointed this out before, Tim, that in that culture, the eldest son was the one that inherited the lion's share being born first. There were a lot of oh benefits that came with being the firstborn of a family. So I just want to lay that context that both these sons were given their share of the property. 
So the father split his estate between the two. And I, I, I read this somewhere. It may not be 100% accurate, but basically the older son got about two thirds uh, and the younger son got about one third. Now, the, the father has given this to them. So now dad is not living in his own home. He's living in his oldest son's home and is part of that family staying there. And the younger son takes his stuff, goes off. So now everything there at the house is the older brothers. So let me pick up uh, back at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we have a little bit of a... The plot thickening here. Uh, one thing I want to uh, mention on this paragraph and on this parable as a whole is so many times I've heard it preached and being made about don't go squander your wealth. Don't live sinful. I don't think this parable has anything, if, if at all, very little to do with do we really need to convince people that go out into wild living with prostitutes and blowing everything you have until you're broke? is a bad thing. <laughs> but yet that's what I've always heard. It, you know, a big, at least a big portion of the teaching would be on, now don't you do that. You need to be wise. You need to, you know, be like the wise manager who put his money, you know, th that kind of thing. So. Well, I have no proof of this whatsoever, but I feel like the younger son must have been a mid to late teen because at that, at that age, I had four kids, raised them all from pups, all the way up. And uh, that's when they lose their minds, think they know everything and want to leave. So I have a feeling that's when that happened. Sorry. That could be. And I don't think it was Jesus teaching on the dangers of, of teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if, if we can uh, go forward, uh, Tim, you want to continue on? Certainly. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer, no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You know, uh, that he went to a faraway country, so the walk home had to be long. And you know that all he did for that entire period of time was rehearse, write and rehearse this, rehearse this speech to find a way to get his father to accept him as a servant, not as a son, but as a servant. He was hoping for the crumbs off the table, more or less. Yeah. And the problem with rehearsing that, and you can tell because when he got to the father, he said it so perfectly, you know. Right. But the problem with it is he's rehearsing a premise that is wrong, absolutely wrong. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. <clears throat> no, no, no. <laughs> That's not the economy of God's kingdom. We can't earn sonship by the things we do. 
and we can't lose it by our failures. And, and he thought somehow he was going to go back and say, you know, I've lost my standing as your son. Not only have I sinned, but I'm no longer your son. I'm just a servant. And, and we're, we just, you just started the, to show us exactly how the father responded to that kind of thinking. Right, which comes up in verse 20, uh, which I'll reread. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Yes, what a party that must have been. I can imagine if that was my son. One thing I want to point out in uh, verse 20, I'm going to reread it in the NIV here. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. I'm going to stop there. I, I, it's just a small little thing here now, but it just points out that who did he run to? His son had not repented of his sin or said the words yet or received forgiveness yet, but he ran to his son. He had never stopped being his son. There's nothing he could have done that could have stopped him being the son of his father. And that's the point that Jesus is making out and we'll see as we move on from two opposite directions, which coincidentally, he had two opposite polar sides of that question that he was speaking to between the sinners and the Pharisees. So, Just to add a little personal story, I don't know if anyone else has ever experienced this, but I did have a period of time where I was estranged from one of my children. Um, and I'm not going to go into the who's, why's, where's, and how's, but they did eventually reach back out. And I accepted them. There was no question of you have to apologize, you have to make up for, you have to do this, you have to do that. It was just, I've always, I've always loved you. I will always love you. I accept you, and I will accept whatever you will give me as far as relationship goes. And since that time, um, we've gotten closer, and for which I'm very grateful, both uh, to God and to them for, ta- you know, getting to that point where they could do that. Yeah. And the key was it wasn't about what they did or didn't do. It was about who they were, their identity, which is exactly the same with our relationship with God once we have put our faith in Christ. Yep. Yep. And I felt the loss of relationship during that time that that uh, grieved me a little, you know, sure. all constantly until that was repaired. So, sure. you know, if I can feel that way as a human being and this father can feel that way as a human being, how much more so our Heavenly Father? Amen. So the father comes running, filled with compassion to his son, who had never stopped being his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son still hadn't said anything yet. Okay. So then the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And this is what I really love about the NIV in this one, too. It said, but the father said to his servants, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. It was quick. He didn't even let the son get done with his entire speech yet. 
He had only said the first two lines of it. He didn't need to hear that stuff. Quick, you're still my son. And he just treated him like, like his son. And, you know, some people that don't understand grace would say, oh, it seems like the father's rewarding him for his sin. No, no, no. The father's rewarding him because it's his son who was lost and now he's found. Well, I know this is a modernization picture in my head, but I picture as the son starting to speak, the father's holding up his hand, like talk to the hand, but he never addressed any of what the son said. He, he just puts his hand up and starts talking to everyone else. And the son pretty much gets the picture from what he's saying. Right. You know, he doesn't have to address the son and tell him, but right. he knows. And, and the key to that is that as much as this, as, as sorry as this young man was for his son and was willing to come back as a servant, his father would not even hear of it. He wouldn't even listen to it. Quick, boom, didn't even have to think about it. He'd never stopped being his son. And that's the same for us. There's many of our listeners out there, many Christians or unbelievers that walk around with a ton of guilt on their shoulders, and they believe that they have disqualified themselves for sonship. But you know what God says? Quick, put the robe on him, put the ring on him. You know, I, I just love that, that the father is not hearing any of that. It doesn't even enter into this conversation or this situation. So that, that whole premise of sinning against heaven and against God makes us no longer worthy to be his son. That's what the law will tell you, because the law, you have to earn your worthiness and your righteousness and your place in God's people. Yeah. So we go from the son returning, the younger son. So now enter the picture of the older brother, starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost and is found. So I can imagine that the crowd that day when they heard this, that the tax collectors and sinners were identifying with the younger prodigal who had taken off and lived a life of, of sin and failure. And I can imagine the Pharisees, oh, all proud of the older son out in the field working, you know. But it, it really is the same misunderstanding by two different groups. One group believes that because they're working, because they're the righteous, upright Pharisees following the law, they're not like these sinners over here, that they are worthy to be sons. In fact, they called themselves the sons of Abraham, but Jesus taught them that Abraham became a son because of his 
his belief. It was credited to him as righteousness. And that that's not what makes you a child of Abraham. It's faith. So you've got the older brother coming in now who has the same misunderstanding of sonship and fatherhood. And he thinks that because he's out in the field slaving and has never disobeyed, which, first of all, don't tell me you've never disobeyed your entire life, eldest son. We've all disobeyed. But the point I'm trying to make is he believed because he didn't egregiously and for all to see sin that he he at least on one hand deserved more than the younger son who had lived a life of sin in recent history, or at the very least, if he didn't deserve more, that the son that had squandered everything didn't deserve to still be a son. So it's that same misunderstanding that it's not about what we do. You could do, we could do for the rest of our life as perfectly as we absolutely can, and it's not good enough. Because if you've sinned once, you've broken the whole law. The standard of of gaining your worth and value to God and your salvation or sanctification or blessing is perfection for your entire life. And nobody can do that. Nor even if we could, what kind of life is that going to be? That's not, I'll tell you what kind of life it's going to be. And I just noticed this while you were reading verse 25. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. So he's out there slaving, okay? When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Where do you want to live your life? In the field, slaving? or under music and dancing celebration because God loves us so much that it's not about our mistakes or how hard we're working, but because that we are his children in Christ. I just love that contrast there between slaving and music and dancing. Well, I think some of the things you brought up in that, uh, in that brief description of yours is that the Jesus is talking to the sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees and each side is going to see what they see in this, and and they're going to uh, feel a relationship to one way or the other. But I, I wanted to find a little bit more. It sounds to me like the brother in the field, being what the the person you like you said that the Pharisees and stuff would look up to. There's he's just the self righteous people. He's like look how look how good I am. He's drawing attention to himself by his works trying to earn his whatever it is he's trying to earn he already owns everything that the father had you know all the property is his but he's trying to earn something through what he's doing rather than just taking advantage of his father's relationship that doesn't mean the work gets on to goes undone don't get me wrong but you know his his attitude of the work isn't joy in what he owns and what he's doing with his father it's in i'm trying to earn something here and when this guy comes along who's the sinner who represents the sinner who was lost and is now found and gets given everything that i think the older one was working for that's where he, the cringe comes in with the older brother. And I like that the words the older brother uses in the NIV. He said, all these years I've been slaving for you. 
There was no joy in his work, even he, though he was working for himself, because he was going to inherit two thirds of everything anyway. And that's that's something that Ajay always points out that under the law, the most we're ever going to be is a slave, but under grace, under the cross, under God's love, the least we're ever going to be is a child, a son and daughter. And I've always yeah. loved that saying that that he gave us. One thing. Um, can I can I read the last a little paragraph here? Um, I think you're right, but I want to focus in on it. And that's 31. And I, what I love about this is, is that Jesus is talking to the tax collectors and sinners, and they're the ones who flocked to him. They're the ones who wept at his feet, drying their feet with his tears. They're the ones who struggled through crowds just to touch the hem of his garment all the time while the Pharisees and teachers of the law and scribes and religious leaders are muttering and accusing him and plotting to kill him. Yet, at the end of this, listen to what he says to the eldest son, who would be the son the Pharisees and religious leaders are identifying with. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. He didn't rebuke the oldest son. And I think what I love about this is it reminds me of what our what one of our old uh, pastors that we both, a church that we originally met at, said. He said, most Christians live, live lives of working hard to get into a room they're already in. Yeah, very good. I remember that. And these Pharisees were the chosen people of God, but they weren't chosen to hold uphold the law. They were chosen because of the promise made to Abraham, the first announcing of the gospel, which we just studied last week in Galatians. They were already, they belonged to God. They were his children, and yet they were on the verge of forfeiting it because they were rejecting the Christ as he came. And, but, and yet he reaches out to them and, you know, in this parable, the eldest son who definitely needed an attitude adjustment, you know, um, he says, don't you know, you're always with me and everything I has is yours. And what I love about that last saying, it's a scriptural proof I use a lot when I'm talking to people and trying to convince them that by following rules and doing it better and performing better, behaving better, there's not going to be greater blessing for you. Everything God has is already yours. He says it in Romans 8 when it says that if he didn't spare his own son for you while we were dead in transgression, now that you're his children, how will he not graciously give us all things? And here, even to the son who is clearly in the wrong here, who's having a conniption, and to the Pharisees there, he's saying, don't you know everything I have is already yours? Stop working for it. Be my son. Let me be your father. And then he finishes up. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Yep. It's a, it is a tale of two prodigal sons, both, both with the wrong idea of who their father was and who they were in his eyes, just from different perspectives. And because it was a parable, obviously Jesus is using that to teach them about a universal spiritual truth 
that there are two worldviews that are in conflict. And one is that you work hard, you earn, you don't watch R-rated movies, you give 10%, you read a chapter a day, you pray an hour a day, you go to church on Wednesdays and Sundays, you better be in church unless you're, I'm getting tired just telling you all the stuff some churches required. Or you can live as a child of God. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You're never going to feel that freedom as a slave, only as a son. Now, there's not anything wrong with reading your Bible every day, praying every no, day, going to church not. on Wednesday and Sunday. Those are good things if if you're doing it with the right heart. You're doing it out of love and joy, and you're you know you're getting something out of it. That's fine. We're not saying you you know these doing things is stupid. We're saying, I think in my mind, at least in some part, that your motivation for doing these things. Check that at the door and make sure you know why you're doing it. Don't make that a part of the gospel. It's right. not a part of the gospel. It's one of the treasures of the gospel we get to do. Yeah. But it adds nothing to God's love for us and our standing and relationship as his children. Amen. Well, we've read, read through the entire chapter, Mark. Are you, are you ready to do a summation and take us out? Well, I'll just finish my last thought because I, I think I forgot. But the parable is about two different worldviews. The one hand, you've got the religious worldview that's about the rules. And then on the other hand, you have the grace, the undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor of God that's been brought to us by Jesus. Great sacrifice on the cross and also by the fact that he perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. One of my favorite scriptures, it's Romans 7 says that for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. So when you put your faith in Christ, you're getting all the blessings of the law as well because he fulfilled it for you. Amen. I just want to encourage everybody to do what we said early on, and that is, if you're having troubles accepting this, go go start a study on your own. Look at all these verses. If you're a person who is looking for support to learn and grow in this, obviously we'd like you to keep coming back here. But there are many, many resources out there for you. Uh, and you can find a lot of these by going to locategraceministries.com. Uh, they have uh, a good listing of online resources, ministry, ministries, and churches, and you can even find them by where you live, so if there's one close to you. That would be great. Well, that's going to do us today, Mark. I uh, appreciate your coming, and I, I know I'm going to hear about this when Ajay listens to this episode, but look how succinct we can be when it's just you and me. We're just trying to keep him humble. <laughs> because as the Apostle Paul, you know, great learning, Paul said that he had a thorn in his side to keep him humble. So we're just, that's our ministry to Ajay. So Amen. we miss you, Ajay. Come on back soon. Amen. And thank you very much, everybody. And we'll talk to you again the next time. Tim again. Thanks for listening today. We hope you were blessed by today's message. If so, we encourage you to subscribe and share our podcast with your friends and family. Our entire catalog of episodes can be found on our website at www.theunveiledgospel.com or you can listen and subscribe on most popular podcast apps. 
you have any feedback or questions, you can send us an email to theunveiledgospel at yahoo.com. You can reach out to us on our Facebook page, The Unveiling Podcast, or you can leave a question or comment on our listener line at 352-398-0089. Maybe you'll hear yourself on a future episode. That's it for today. As always, God bless, and we will talk to you the next time.